You are listening to You Might Have a Point. Each week, I bring on a different guest to discuss politics and related topics. The point of the show is to get to know more about what the guest believes and why, which is why we primarily discuss their own views and not my own. I believe in learning about a broad range of viewpoints so that even when you disagree with someone about a lot of things, you can still sometimes say, you know, you might have a point. You can find out more at youmighthaveapoint.com. I am pleased to welcome to the podcast today, Joe Lipino Esposito, who is currently Deputy Legal Director, Legal Policy Director at the Pacific Legal Foundation and was formerly with the Due Process Institute and has worked at the Heritage Foundation. Joe, welcome to the podcast. Yeah, thanks so much for having me. So I'd like to work uh, chronologically here. I think uh, the thing that I'm most familiar with uh, and that's maybe the biggest work that you've had an impact on was the First Step Act. So could you tell us a little bit about uh, what that was and your role in it? Yeah, absolutely. You know, the First Step Act was a culmination of several, several years of work at the federal level on criminal justice reform. Um, You know, it was based on the idea that started in Texas, of all places, um, in the uh, the mid-2000s. The idea was that there was a way to really be good about criminal justice reform and the way that you spent on prisons and on uh, criminal justice generally on corrections. Um, the idea, of course, for many, many years had been, you know, with the urging of the federal government and the, what they used to call the Biden crime bill, uh, mm-hmm. but that the name fell out of favor in the last couple of years, of course. But what they used to call that uh, was the Biden crime bill. It encouraged states to uh, add uh, tougher penalties and longer sentences. Um, it was uh, a political play, you know, by both sides trying to act tougher for years and years. Uh, but at some point, Texas kind of had the dilemma of, well, do we have to spend another $2 billion over 10 years to house more inmates? Or can we do something else that actually lowers crime rates and actually gets us better results? So th- that result kind of led to groups um, like Right on Crime that I used to work for, um, who really pushed the idea that you could, you could do criminal justice and you can do it right, not just by making longer sentences, but by actually trying to rehabilitate people. Mm-hmm. So that's sort of the heart of what the First Step Act is all about. Um, it took a few different elements uh, from several different bills that were proposed over the years. Um, first and foremost, it took um, the idea of rehabilitation and uh, what can be done in prisons uh, to actually get people back when they, when they are released from prison, because you know, 95 plus percent of people are eventually released from prison. Um, get them ready to re-enter society uh, and incentivized it by allowing them to get more time in things like home confinement or in a halfway house rather than just in a federal prison. So that was the first part. Um, the second part was uh, on sentencing itself. So uh, we made a number of corrections there, perhaps the wrong word, a, a number of fixes and reforms. Adjustments, there. yeah. Yeah, uh, when it comes to, to sentencing. Um, one of them was uh, regarding like the stacking provision. That was something that said that um, if you were essentially caught uh, dealing drugs with a, um, with, with a firearm, you would get an increased sentence after each conviction. Um, the way, of course, it was written, it implied the idea of a recidivist penalty. You know, you get mm-hmm. arrested the one time, you, you get sentenced, you go to prison, then you're released and you do it again. Uh, unfortunately, the way the courts had interpreted it was that it could be all done on one, one indictment. So you had one individual in particular, Weldon Angelos, who sort of was well known for his sentence. Um, over a week's period, he sold about $1,000 worth of marijuana. And because they said he either had actual possession or constructive possession of a firearm, he received a 55-year sentence. 
Hmm. Um, so uh, he eventually was released due to a, a prosecutor um, a deal uh, that came later, but uh, he had been in prison for a number of years before he was released. So uh, that's, that was sort of the, the meat and potatoes of what happened with, with the bill itself and the policy. But I think you know where it kind of came about was the idea that um, Jared Kushner, uh, the president's son-in-law, uh, had a lot of experience with the criminal justice system through his father. Mm-hmm. Um, his father was uh, convicted um, in New Jersey when Chris Christie was the U.S. attorney there. Um, and it was very tough on the family. And he came to understand sort of the plight of, of people and the families who deal with uh, harsh federal penalties for a number of crimes. And he was really the one that helped spearhead the effort uh, initially. And okay. then he brought on a lot of folks uh, from Texas and elsewhere. Yeah, so I want to dig in there just a bit to the idea of constructive possession. Um, I'm guessing, having read a little bit about it, that it's not actually having the firearm on you. Am I correct about that? That's correct. So um, sort of the classic case, and it was, as was the case with Weldon Angelos, and I believe it was on his um, second and third purchase uh, or, or buy that was controlled by that was done. Um, in one case, uh, he had it in his vehicle, but not actually mm-hmm. on his, his person. So that one you can say, okay, well, it's a little closer. Uh, but the final one, it was actually in his home, uh, but not actually on him. Um, and there are a number of cases and some states have, have dealt with the issue of constructive uh, possession um, and, and kind of gone in the opposite direction to say, look, you know, it actually has to be on you. It can't be upstairs in your house. Right. I mean, there was a, a, an advocate for criminal justice who was sort of caught when he, he had violated his parole and they tried to get him for possession of a handgun uh, while he was resisting arrest or exactly, I don't remember the exact situation, mm-hmm. but you know, he, it wasn't on him when he was doing it, mm-hmm. but they're saying, well, it was in your house. You could have run upstairs and Sure, but that's a different charge. That's that's something else, you know. Yeah. Um, so that that's an issue um, that wasn't necessarily solved by the the First Step Act. But I mean, it, it speaks to the idea that we're kind of tackling these ideas and challenging uh, the get tough laws that just sort of stack penalties on top of penalties. Mm-hmm. Yeah, the the get tough mindset I think is interesting because uh, sort of a, a naive or stereotypical framing of uh, conservatism would would be that more tough on crime. Um, do you think that's the right way to to view the um, conservative approach to criminal justice or how would you frame it? You know, I think it's, it's funny. Um, the phrase tough on crime obviously has a certain connotation. Um, but what I've come to learn, and I think a lot of conservatives are kind of the perspective, you can still be tough on crime because it's not exactly tough to just say, throw the guy in prison, make him have no amends for what he's done and just put a bunch of years on it, call it a day and let him watch TV and work out. Mm-hmm. That's that's not exactly tough. What is tough is trying to get someone who's in prison to actually turn their life around, and actually mm-hmm. rehabilitate. You know, that was sort of the original intention of why prisons were created in the first place, uh, is for people to kind of sit in, in contemplation of their crimes versus sort of the the far harsher penalties that were done prior to this. Um, so I, I think the conservative position, particularly from um, you know a religious perspective, became more on this rehabilitation. Uh, angle, which frankly is a lot tougher than the way we were doing things. It's not exactly tough just to throw someone in prison and, and throw away the key. Okay. So the idea being that rehabilitating sort of is tougher because it's uh, asking someone to take the steps that are necessary to reenter society. Exactly. Yeah. And, and take responsibility for their actions in, in most cases. Okay. Um, yeah. I forgot to ask at the start of the show, I guess I usually ask, um, people to describe themselves in terms of their ideology or worldview. So if you could go ahead and do that. Yeah. Yeah. I guess, you know, conservative libertarian, more or less, uh, okay. you know, I, I've, uh, 
come to uh, appreciate uh, a lot of free speech and open speech and uh, in that regard. And then in, in a lot of ways where, uh, you know, I'm not uh, a full-blown anarchist that the government <laughs> should all be eliminated for all things, but it has a purpose. And, you know, when we talk about criminal justice, that's one of the purposes that we've all sort of agreed that we think it's okay for sure. the government to, to have that state power and take away your, your life or liberty. Uh, they better be doing it right. So that's kind of the perspective I came from when criminal justice is, you know, we've agreed to this idea. Let's make sure it's done correctly and not, not just off the wall. Yep. So um, the First Step Act was, I guess, the first step in uh, federal criminal justice reform. But what are some of the things that you think could still be done at the federal level? So there are a number of other issues. Uh, and there have been some bills since then. Uh, there was um, things regarding discovery reform. Um, you know, Judge Sullivan, who I think a lot of people now know from the, um, uh, the Michael Flynn case most recently, was prior to this most well known for um, the, the case of Ted Stevens, who was a U.S. senator from Alaska, who, mm-hmm. uh, in so many words, is just railroaded by pr- prosecutors who uh, withheld what we call Brady information. So it's information, uh, Brady evidence, I should say, uh, that's evidence that uh, is uh, conclusive that there is uh, uh, some sort of factor that would be uh, exonerating for the defendant. Uh, they withheld it, and Sullivan, Judge Sullivan, was quite harsh on those attorneys in, in order to special investigation. Um, and unfortunately, really nothing was done ultimately to those attorneys. Um, the the union fought back, and uh, essentially, you know, all the penalties that were weighed against them were were eliminated. Um, and that again is a, a place for reform where I think the left and the right agree. And there's been some reform done to that. The um, the Due Process Act was passed uh, toward the end of um, the, the last administration. Uh, it was a bipartisan bill, uh, and that was really positive. Um, we, I think that we'll see some more things and some more movement on uh, sentencing as well. Um, and I think the other piece that we'll see, and we saw some from an executive order from uh, President Trump that I hope uh, President Biden does not overturn, is in regards to the idea of overcriminalization and overall just the idea that the federal government, at every chance it has gotten between the politicians and the regulators and everyone else, in order to show that they're really serious about something, mm-hmm. they're going to go ahead and turn it into a criminal penalty. Mm-hmm. That's not always the right solution. Um, and again, it's this was sort of a, a an issue that I guess started on the right from sort of the regulatory business perspective. Mm-hmm. But there's a lot of gr- ground also on the left to talk about things like drug laws and uh, you know what possession looks like when it comes to the drugs and um, what's the the requisite what we call mens rea. What's the criminal intent that you need to have? So in the case of uh, the case in Florida where someone rented a vehicle and the vehicle happened to have drugs in it from the last guy that had the vehicle, mm-hmm. they forgot to pull something out of the wheel well or wherever it was. Yeah. Well, is the guy now driving the vehicle responsible? Well, he didn't have the adequate mens rea, but some courts would say, well, no, I mean, it doesn't <laughs> matter because possession is possession. Um, and, that, and that's a different case, not to confuse things with our constructive possession uh, sure. uh, discussion earlier. But, you know, generally speaking, if you're the, the one riding the, uh, driving the vehicle and you have control of the vehicle, that is, that is your possession. Um, but there's really no set mens rea in a number of states when it comes to, to these laws. So that's a spot, particularly at the federal level, where you have so many criminal laws that every attempt to count them has just, they've given up. They just said, we can't do it. Never mind. Hmm. Um, and depending on who you ask, they're, they're up to 300,000. Uh, regulations that could result in a criminal penalty. So uh, that's something that really needs to get cut back in one way or another. And what um, President Trump did uh, right as he left was talk about the idea from the perspective of when a new regulation is put on, 
um, that that's based off an existing law, there has to be a full explanation as to why you're doing that and why, you know, what's the, the, the mens rea either for the underlying statute or for the regulation. And is that really appropriate to have a criminal penalty there? And then they're also asking that when things get referred then to DOJ from an agency, that there's a full accounting and explanation as to why this couldn't just be done through a civil penalty, which could be pretty devastating in themselves. I mean, they could be hundreds of thousands or millions of dollars, depending on you know what the, what the crime is. Um, and that could just be, a, and it wouldn't be a crime, it would just be a civil penalty. Uh, it's a very different conversation to have. And I think obviously there's some abuse that could be had there as well, but to at least keep it out of the criminal realm, I think is pretty important. Okay. Yeah, the question of intent is really interesting to me. I guess, you know, I typically buy used vehicles and I don't inspect every inch of it, right? And so yeah. theoretically, I could be driving around with uh, illegal substances of any sort. And, right. you know, if someone found probable cause, I guess, for some other reason to investigate, uh, they could find that. Um, but they would have no way of proving intent um, because I haven't, <laughs> I don't have intent. Uh, but at the same time, um, I guess, uh, there's, there's the question of, well, it's very difficult to prove intent. And sometimes if you want to be tough on crime, um, do you, can you even prove a state of mind? So how do you view the balance there? Yeah. I mean, it can be tough and that's why I think there's, um, you know, there are different levels of intent, right? If it's something that we want to capture every time, so sort of the classic quote unquote strict liability offense, the one that would not have men's right is something like statutory rape. There's mm -hmm. no defense that you didn't know how old the person was that you, you had sex with, right? Um, so that's when we've decided, okay, that one's going to be strict no matter what. Um, but other ones where it says, you know, you uh, knowingly uh, use, uh, put a, uh, a false statement through the U.S. mail. Well, what elements of the crime do you have to prove there? Did, was mm -hmm. it a knowing false statement or was it just knowing that you put it through the mail? So if you only need to prove one of those elements, it's a lot easier to do it if you make an honest mistake, but you knowingly dropped it in the mailbox. It would have to be some scenario in which case you didn't intend to mail it, and your <laughs> secretary grabbed it, or who knows, right? I, right. It would be harder to prove. Um, but sort of in, in another case that uh, sort of made some news back, I guess, about 10 years ago now, but it's, again, sort of a, a classic example of where even sort of the best intentions on some of these terms go wrong. Uh, a maintenance manager named Lawrence Lewis uh, was in Maryland and the, it was at a, uh, a senior facility and um, not to be gross, but the sewage backed up. Mm -hmm. Thought he was putting the pipe into the sewage drain. He was putting it into the storm drain. And it was an honest mistake. The guy before him had been doing it the wrong way. He did the same mistake. Um, when some of this waste showed up in Rock Creek Park in DC, someone had some questions. They went around, they figured out it was him. And well, because it was just that he knowingly put the pipe into that wrong pipe. Well, that's all I had to prove that he knowingly put the pipe into mm. the pipe. They didn't have to prove that he was knowingly putting it into the wrong pipe. Just right. that he knowingly put it in there. He didn't, he didn't, he didn't accidentally kick it in. Right? right. I mean, that's basically right. what it came down to. And he faced up to five years in federal prison. Now he, he wound up making a deal and settled. Um, and that's actually part of the problem of proving sort of the problem of the case. You'd have to find very specific fact patterns like his to say, okay, this is a perfect example of where mens rea goes wrong. Uh, but considering that I believe it's 98% of federal cases plead out, you're not mm. gonna get that info unless you are in every courtroom in, in every single district and it's just, it's not gonna happen. Yeah, so that that brings up another issue of, of plea bargains, right? Um, I, I'm curious to get your thoughts on that because uh, just from, what I understand, which is not too much detail, but um, plea bargains can often be a way 
uh, for overzealous prosecutors to just sort of run people through the mill and um, get them to plead down, uh, especially if maybe they don't have necessarily the most competent defense um, and really uh, justice might not be being done there. What's your take? Yeah, so it's interesting. I think a lot of people in the American context from reform kind of want to either eliminate them altogether or severely limit them in one way or another. Um, but not to sound like a broken record, I think the issue gets back to the overcriminalization piece, right? Mm-hmm. If there's enough penalties that you can hit someone with, right? If there's, they do one action, but you can charge them with five different things. Well, it doesn't matter what the plea bargain is that you make because they could be facing 200 years. Well, you don't want them to do 200 years, so you better make a deal, right? Mm. So you don't want to not have a deal. Uh, you don't want to have the one size fits all type thing uh, or, or you know, force everything into the, into the courtroom. There, there should be some efficiencies on these things, uh, but that's not always the best way of doing it. So uh, not to give a non-answer, but I'm a little mixed because it's really, um, it, it depends on the situation. I, I think they can be abused, certainly. Uh, mm-hmm. But you don't want to eliminate them entirely. So okay. I, I think it would be important. And again, you know, I think some people propose a solution where you do something like, oh, you can only plea down to a certain percentage off the original charge. Well, again, mm-hmm. in the scenario where you can be hit with 200 years, what's your number going to be? 150 <laughs> years? I mean, it's yeah. not, it's crazy. Yeah. So um, in which case, you know, maybe everybody would go to trial. Um, so that maybe you'd force more trials and then force a different charging decision. So um it's a bit of a chicken and the egg thing, but I think at the heart of it, you have still the overcriminalization problem in the first place that okay. if every penalty, you can hit them with five penalties and they're 25 years each, well then, you know, what kind of deal can you make? Got it. So um, you mentioned that one of the reasons the first step back came about into getting passed was Jared Kushner's involvement. And I think it's interesting to sort of reflect uh, on I guess the Trump administration is, I think it could be fairly described as haphazard in its approach to legislation. And um, at the same time, uh, that criminal justice reform was one of the areas that got broad bipartisan support. Um, So how do you think about sort of the national political scene as it relates to criminal justice reform? Are you seeing more of sort of a a agreement across the political spectrum on these issues? You know, I think there still is pretty strong agreement. And uh, yeah, it was one of those things where, um, you know, I, I think it's not it's not giving away state secrets to say that if it was a, a priority on Jared Kushner's list or uh, Brooke Rollins, who came to run the Domestic Policy Council, who had originally worked with Jared Kushner as the senior advisor, um, you know, if it was on their agenda, it usually got done. It usually got done mm-hmm. well, right? So they pushed it and, and Brooke, you know, obviously I've, I've known Brooke for a number of years. She was one of the people that hired me when I was at Texas Public Policy Foundation. Um, she understood why that worked, right? She understood why criminal justice reform worked. Um, you know, frankly, you know, the right on crime um, angle from uh, TPPF is, is probably the, one of their strongest sections of what, of what they do there. So she understood it and she understood the politics of it as well. Um, and I think we're seeing that again and again um, in a number of states. I mean, we've seen Mississippi, uh, recently, Ohio's made some major changes to sentencing reform and, and they're pushing for more. Um, so overall, there is a pretty broad bipartisan support. Uh, I think on some issues is where we run into to problems where, um, frankly, the left has tried to take bite off more than they can chew, right? You have the idea of, I think both sides agree there needs to be some reform to bail, but to completely eliminate it and have no real good system otherwise and really not do a good job of judging um, you know, what, 
basically not holding anybody free trial for any good reason, mm. that's not the solution, right? Like not looking at risk at all is not the answer. So you're going to have those conflicts where I think some sides either go too far and then perhaps the right doesn't go far enough in some states and you're going to have those, those conflicts. Um, but overall, I, I, it's, it's positive. Um, at the same time, you see things like, um, you know, uh, the ladies at the View getting very mad at Van Jones for working with folks on the right, but you know if he wasn't there and his group wasn't there with us working on it, um, I don't know if it would have gotten done. You know he mm-hmm. had to do a lot of convincing. I think even folks like Hakeem Jeffries and in, uh, in in the Congress, you know Dick Durbin in the Senate, um, you know they had to work with President uh, Trump on this. And um, you know if it weren't that they were in the middle or about to go into a government shutdown when he signed the bill, I think there would have been a few more Democrats at the signing ceremony uh, besides Van Jones. But uh, that was the politics of literally that day. Uh, But otherwise, you know, it was an overwhelming vote. I I believe every Democrat voted for the First Step Act in the Senate. um, And only a handful of Republicans voted against it. So um, overall, I I think uh, they set a good tone. And, And frankly, because it was President Trump that did it, um, it, it gave a lot of leeway for some folks in some states that, you know, would think, oh, this, this must be something crazy. Even though, even if it came out of Texas, I still don't believe that it could be conservative. Well, mm-hmm. that was sort of the last straw for a lot of people. Like, well, if Trump can do it too, then, then what are we waiting for? You're talking, are you talking about at the state level? Um, yeah. State level. Okay. Yeah. Uh, that makes sense. It's- yeah. And frankly, at the yeah. federal level as well. I mean, I think um, the first time out when it came through that, the, the House, there was a few more no Republican votes. Um, and when it came through again, once it came to the Senate and then added in the sentencing provisions that we thought were going to be a lot more contentious, that went up actually being one of the easier ads to the bill, which was just, it, it was, I mean, it was all weird, uh, but uh, <laughs> and, and sort of surreal. But that in particular was, was strange that the, 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 the thing that we thought was going to have the biggest argument uh, went in with almost out incident. Uh, and instead we were arguing over you know, which people would not be qualified for early home confinement based on whatever underlying crime that they had committed. So um, okay. it wound up being a, overall, it's sort of an easier battle uh, in the end. Got it. All right. So I uh, want to move now to your op-ed in the Hill, um, which was headlined, say no thanks to Thanksgiving mandates. Um, and I like to comment when I can that, you know, uh, people who write op-eds or editorials don't read the headlines. Um, but right. I, I guess I'll <laughs> summarize your basic point being that um, you don't uh, have a problem with the um, content of the restrictions per se, but it's the nature of the emergency orders and the continuing emergency orders that you're taking issue with. Yeah, that's exactly right. That, that's the real issue. And, and we've seen it time and again in all, in all these states where either the governor or some sort of local official, a county executive, um, or just a health official who's not even elected can declare, look, we're closing the schools, we're closing all the restaurants, we're doing whatever. So it's sort of a, a, a several fold problem, right? So you have um, in the states where it's sort of uh, best, but not great, um, you have just the governor making these statewide orders, not some unelected official, and not just a, an unelected local official making these orders. Mm-hmm. Um, but what they're doing is they're extending them and calling it an emergency, you know, for here we go, we're almost at a year, right? Um, that's just a violation of what the word emergency means, right? An emergency is sudden onset. We don't have a lot of facts. We don't know what's going on. Um, that makes sense, right? In the East Coast context, it would be the hurricane's coming in. We have a mandatory evacu- evacuation order. And any other day of the week, the governor can't tell you to leave your house, right? right. But it's an emergency. We allow for some of this stuff. But if the order continued for a year. No, no, you still can't go back to your house. 
well, we'd have a serious problem with it, right? Mm -hmm. um, but in this context, we said, well, it's an ongoing problem. Of course it is. And sometimes it's an ongoing problem that the whole shoreline got wiped out by the storm, but it doesn't mean that uh, it's, it's still an emergency. It's just another problem. Um, and we got plenty of those in government. And usually when it comes to fixing them, we look to laws and legislation. So uh, the, the thing that we're, we've been proposing at Pacific Legal Foundation is the idea of a reform where you're targeting um, these things in scope and in time limit. So you're saying, look, initially, if the governor has an emergency order, that's fine. That makes perfect sense. Um, but it can't go on past seven days unless they call the legislature in. And if they call the legislature in or if the legislature is already in session and can hear it um, directly, there are then 30 days for the governor and the legislature to make sense of it and figure out what they can do to extend that order or just pass a law that says something otherwise. Um, and, and that I think is important because it's getting to the heart of the separation of powers. When you have an emergency power that is effectively law past 30 days, then the executive branch is writing the laws and that's, mm -hmm. that's against the constitution. So we have that piece of it. And then the other piece is also um, making sure that the judiciary branch is involved as well um, and making sure that they are looking at these things through what we call strict scrutiny, saying, we understand that you need to do some of these restrictions, but are you doing this in the least restrictive means possible um, that still protects constitutional rights, but also uh, has a real compelling reason for health and safety. So um, in the context, uh, perhaps most famously in California, we've seen time and again, um, you know, until I guess a week ago, if even now, um, the governor and local officials just kept saying, oh, well, outdoor dining is closed. And every time they'd be brought to court to explain themselves, they have zero explanation. Well, that's not exactly a compelling reason. If you have no explanation as to why you're doing a thing, that's not compelling. Um, they're just saying COVID-19 is bad. Okay. But what about the restaurants and why are you doing it this way? Why are you restricting freedom in this particular way? And they had no answer. So not surprisingly, when they kind of had to start facing the music in the courts, suddenly everything reopened. Uh, so I think it was partially a political problem, but also just a, a plain judicial problem. So our bill would be a little more specific um, to states to say, look, this is something the court should pick up pretty quickly. And these are the standards in which they should judge it by. Okay, so this is a bill that you're proposing to state legislatures that they adopt for, I guess, future emergency orders when the situation arises. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, and I mean, some of them, if we look in Kentucky, they've said, you know, essentially that their new law will go into effect within 30 days. And what's pretty remarkable in Kentucky, so they passed the bill with a lot of the same principles that we've been pushing. Um, not surprisingly, the governor vetoed it. Um, and in Kentucky, it actually requires a, a simple majority to override a veto, but they actually had a super majority wow. uh, and they voted to override the veto and the governor immediately sued the legislature to stop <laughs> the law. So that's not something that often happens. Uh, and it's also kind of exactly to the point of why the legislature did it is that the governor wants uh -huh. to just keep ruling unilaterally with no say from them whatsoever. Um, so, uh, he asked for a, an injunction. He got it on one piece of a, another bill, but the one that we were supporting, um, that, that one, they were not granted an injunction. So we will see uh, where that goes. Okay. Yeah. That's fascinating to me that, um, I, I sometimes see Congress maybe suing the executive branch on occasion, but I had never heard of a state governor suing the legislature. Yeah, um, it's pretty rare. I, I, I don't recall any specific ones there. Uh, but yeah, it's um, we're seeing a lot of showdowns like that. Um, Wisconsin also you know, sort of most recently, the headline was, you know, GOP uh, legislature overturns mask mandate. Uh, 
Mm-hmm. Uh, but what they were doing was saying, well, look, we have a law on the books that emergency orders can only last 60 days. And they're saying, well, we want to enforce that already. It's been 60 days. Yeah. The governor is saying, well, I'm just going to keep continuing it. Uh, and what he did there was something that we also talk about in our model legislation is that uh, what he did was they, they, they said your, your emergency order is over. And he immediately within an hour issued a new one saying new strain, new order. <laughs> um, so, I mean, we can do that all day long. We can do that with the flu too, right? I mean, we yeah. do it with everything if that's what the rule is going to be. So um, our bill specifically says that if it's, uh, if it's either rejected or runs out of time, it can't just be renewed if it's a substantially similar thing. So I think I under our le- bill um, that he would not be allowed to just reissue the order five minutes mm-hmm. later. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and then I guess uh, we're getting to a bad place in society, but I can imagine it, he might want to say, well, this is not a substantially similar thing because it's a different strain, but the right. point there would be <laughs> that it obviously is. Um, yeah. yeah, I guess one thing I'm wondering about, not all state legislatures are in session year round. And I can imagine maybe, you know, when they're not in session, governor uh, needs to take emergency actions and the situation lasts longer than 30 days. Have you considered how that might play into your proposal legislation? Yeah. So our proposal says if they're not a year on legislature, the governor is required to call them back into a special session within those seven days. Mm-hmm. So now there's also a scenario where to go back to the hurricane scenario, right? The governor could call uh, for mandatory evacuation uses emergency powers. And because it's not going to go past the week, he doesn't care if it runs out in seven days because mm-hmm. you know, the hurricane came in and it's left and that's it. Um, so the, he can still do those, um, those types of emergency orders without any interference or involvement with the legislature. And that's sort of, that, that makes a lot of sense to us. Um, if they want to expand it past that time, that's when you have to call the legislature. Okay. And if they're already in session or they're in special session for something else, then they're automatically given that extra leeway anyway. They don't have to be called mm-hmm. in. So, so uh, in the states, either whether they're having another special session or they just happen to be in session at the same time, that is sort of automatically granted right away just because they have the ability to grab it at any, at any point and talk about it. I see. Yeah. And now just because I'm having fun giving this out, I'm imagining a situation where like the, the legislature doesn't want to go back into session i can remember back in the early days of the pandemic when uh procedures hadn't been fully worked out and they were maybe delaying it because of you know they didn't want to meet in person no one knows knew how to use zoom yet you know i don't know so i can i i I guess for for a pandemic i imagine that pandemic specific protocols might be useful for the legislation but um yeah so in our bill we also have that we allow for them to uh meet remotely as well Mm -hmm. so that adds that into their state uh law as well because i I mean i think most of them have either officially passed that or just decided to start doing it without really passing a law uh but this kind of it's it's a belt and suspenders thing it says yeah you can go ahead and do it remotely if that means that's how you you have to meet because and again, it could be a natural disaster thing too. The, the, the roads to the capital aren't, aren't happening. So we got to do it remotely. Well, then, yep. then so be it, you know. Okay. And so uh, final topic of the interview today, going to go to your op-ed in the Washington Examiner about um, the upside of uh, the pandemic as far as regulation and uh, needless regulation is concerned. So why don't you give us a couple of the highlights there? Yeah, you know, what we found throughout the, the pandemic is that, uh, Almost immediately, one of the good things that governors did and some legislatures did was say, yeah, some of these regulations that we put into place, whether it's for food trucks or alcohol delivery or who knows, mm-hmm. not just food related things, but, um, uh, you know, things like um, medicine, uh, telemedicine, um, you know, hospitals, um, uh, 
you know, creating more beds for ICUs and everything else. We're just going to suspend them because we really need them to not be in effect. Well, you know, I would argue that if you can do them in the middle of a pandemic, it's probably okay that you don't have them any other time of the year mm-hmm. or any, at any other point. Um, you know, the idea of telemedicine, right? That you can talk to your doctor through the computer for something that you don't need to go in person for. Um, that was disallowed by a ton of states prior to all this. Now, if they hadn't raised that, you'd have people showing up at doctor's offices that don't need to be there. Um, and, you know, I think a lot of states, people still don't realize what they can and can't do when it comes to that. Uh, but, you know, this could also apply to, to counseling visits. This can apply to uh, a number of different issues that was just not permitted before. Um, and I think so, with some of these like that, I mean, there's no going back. Are they going to suddenly tell people, well, if you essentially just need a doctor's note or you just need to re-up your prescription, but you're required to go into the office, you can't just do it over telemedicine. You don't think everybody wants to do that when they have to, you know, refill a prescription and there's really nothing to be seen. And, you know, the idea had been that we can't really trust, I guess, doctors to know when they should or should not have someone in the office. Um, that's ridiculous. I mean, that, that's legislators deciding that doctors aren't good enough. I don't, I don't get that. Um, so you have other sort of silly things like, um, food trucks in a number of states weren't allowed to go into the state rest areas. I guess you had to compete with the vending machines. I (laughs) I don't really know what the problem was, but of course, when everything shut down and we still wanted the truck drivers to to go around delivering our toilet paper, uh, where were they going to go and eat? Uh, There's literally nowhere to eat, even in the full service uh, station uh, or uh, rest area. They wouldn't be able to to go anywhere to eat. So now we allowed food trucks there. Um, and then some of the other bigger ones, things like certificate of need, which are a real problem, particularly because they're, they're in the medical field pretty prominently, uh, although and also in other fields like moving companies. But the idea of certificate of need laws says that um, in order to start certain businesses, you need to apply for permission from the government. And in some states, you don't really just apply to the government. Part of the people who make the decision are your would-be competitors. And they're, they're asked, do we need another business in this space? And gee, wouldn't it be surprising uh, to find that most of them say, no, we don't need another competitor in our space. We're good with just the five of us <laughs> or however many it is, right? Um, so they had to suspend that because some of these rules and certificate of need related to uh, ambulances, related to ICU beds, related to hospital beds, um, just because they, again, government being afraid that if there were too many hospitals in the area, then someone would have to shut down. Well, there's your answer is if, if they were needed or not. And instead, you, you weren't prepared in a number of areas where they should have had hospital beds, they should have had ambulances. And you had a serious problem. And the whole problem and the whole reason why we locked down uh, was that, that we wanted to flatten the curve because we would overload right. the hospitals. Well, if you had more hospital beds to start with, we wouldn't have that. I mean, let's say we wouldn't have had that problem. Sure. We've had a smaller problem in a number of places. Um, in places like New York and New Jersey, a lot of those laws were in effect. And, and that's where the places that were hardest hit uh, from the onset. So mm-hmm. um, uh, though that's definitely a silver lining where um, it's going to be hard, I think, for a number of these states to return to these sort of ridiculous laws that just restricted um, people's individual uh, ability to start a business or to just sort of live their lives. So what are you thinking about the chances of uh, these um, overly draconian laws being curled uh curtailed for good or do you think it's going to be a limited thing i think they'll be curtailed for good i mean there are obviously some constituencies that want to have them and again like the big hospital systems i'm sure would be love to have those back in place again uh where they've been eliminated um so there's a chance those those can turn but otherwise 
it's, it's always a very limited constituency in the same way that things like taxi cab medallions, like, yeah, um, some people are mad at Uber and Lyft, but you're really going to go back to the medallion idea. Um, you know, the, the idea that you can't uh, just run a, a business like that because it's unsafe. Um, meanwhile, every time I would come home into Dulles airport and I, I live West of Dulles, every authorized cab driver was falling asleep at the wheel because it was mm-hmm. midnight. You know, I mean, that, that wasn't safer just because they were a cab company and they had a medallion and they were driving all day and night. Um, you know, other companies have been able to come in and innovate and, and just have more people available. So for the most part, you're not going to have sleepy drivers because they know or do poorly for the ratings and they don't want to get an accident and they can make their money during the day or elsewhere. So um, it's little things like that where, of course, there's going to be a constituency, but um, I think it's going to be less and less popular uh, when a lot of people got used to the idea of just, you know, refilling their prescription over the uh, over uh, the computer in 10 minutes instead of having to go into the doctor's office and, you know, take a half a day off of work or whatever else. Yeah, makes sense. Um, so uh, I guess just generally one theme with this podcast interview and previous ones is that there are policy reforms at the local and state level that I think would get broad agreement but that for some reason might be cast as like overly conservative or overly liberal. Like I had a um, former Black Lives, Matter, Black Lives Matter leader on and she was talking about reforms like not having 18 year old police officers. And I'm like, well, that seems reasonable to me that we wouldn't want someone who's 18 with a badge and a gun. Um, but uh, yeah, so that's one of the things personally that I like to talk about to see where we can find agreement across a broad range um, of the spectrum. So I appreciate you coming on. Yeah, absolutely. No, happy to be here. And yeah, there there are plenty of issues, I think, in this space in particular, where, um, you know, some of the people most affected, you have things like hair braiders are affected by things like occupational Mm. licensing, Mm -hmm. uh, generally are going to be minorities. And I I think that's sort of, you you would think, you know, uh, the left is going to be all over that. But in a lot of cases, they're not. And it's it's disappointing, because it's seen as this radical free market idea, and it's going (laughs) to be unsafe. Um, You know, you know how you know what will happen to a barber who doesn't do a good job is that no one will go back because they'll see that guy's haircut and no one else will go there and that'll be the end right. of that. Um, you know, it, it's, it's yeah. You know, I, I said a little flippantly, but you know, there, there, are, there are very few things that uh, some of these licenses and, and specialty permissions that are needed from the government, things like moving companies. Um, you, who who wants a special permission for a moving company to yep. to, to move your Can stuff? Can they move your boxes your stuff, or not? That's yeah. the answer, and you have other yeah. right. You have other means of dealing with it. And it's the mm-hmm. idea that we're going to protect ourselves from ourselves. It just, it, it's silly. And, 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 and you would think that most, both sides should get together on these things. And I'm hoping that's where we wind up. Cool. Um, so closing question. And sometimes I remember to uh, send this in advance. I forgot to this time. I apologize, <laughs> but um, kind of a, a broad question. You can answer it in any way you want to, but uh, can you tell me about a time when you heard an argument from uh, someone who criticized your position that you said, you know, you might have a point. Um, you know, that's a good one. I think, um, uh, an issue that I, uh, still kind of wrestle with is the idea of the death penalty. Uh, mm-hmm. so, uh, frankly, I hear good arguments on both sides of that. Um, you've seen, it, it's funny. You, you'd think, um, folks like, uh, prison fellowship, Chuck Colson, uh, sort of famously went from against the death penalty to in favor of the death penalty after doing his prison work. Um, so you hear very interesting and good arguments on both sides of that, uh, discussion, um, and obviously there's a, there's a faith element to it as well. So, um, it's pretty interesting. Uh, and, and I've 
that, that's one I think in particular, every time I hear a different debate on it, I go, oh, that's pretty good. And you yeah. the other one, you go, eh, that's pretty good too. Yeah. Um, but in general, I, I've generally said, I, I think I've come now over time to be opposed to it for the most part. Mm-hmm. Um, because uh, again, I, I generally don't trust that the government can get things right all the time. Um, and that's sort of the, the, the sort of the, the lazy refrain that sometimes we would have on the right, but I, I still like it, sure. which is if you can, uh, if you don't trust the government to run the post office, do you expect them to decide to decide someone's life or death or decide who's yeah. guilty and who's not guilty? They're going to be better at that. How are they going to be better yeah. at that? Uh, yeah. it's, and, it's, it's a moral hazard. That's, that's what I would say. And it, exactly. And exactly. It, it also saves money, which is, you know, like uh, just in terms of like the cost of um, this, the entire system, like if you're looking to be a conservative, yes. about it, you know, cool. Well, Joe Lapino Esposito, thank you for coming on. You might have a point. <laughs> Thanks. That's all for today. If you have any feedback, please feel free to reach out. You can find my contact details in the show notes. Please also take a moment to rate and review the podcast on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. One logistical note is that I usually try to release an episode every Sunday, but I will be taking next week off, so the next episode will be released on the 28th. Thanks for listening, and take care.